Good morning to each of you. Let's continue to worship by taking God's Word and turning to the book of Nahum. If you are visiting, perhaps you don't have a Bible with you, please look under the chair in front of you, around you. You will find a Bible. And let me help you out. The book of Nahum is found on page 782. I peeked while we were singing. If you're using your own Bible, you're on your own. But the book of Nahum, just to throw you a curveball, also find the book of Romans, the book of Romans. And we will get there at some point this morning. Spiritual apathy. I think most of you probably know what I mean by that, spiritual apathy. A lack of consecration. Worldliness, carelessness, a lack of giving, an unwillingness to forgive, an absence of evangelistic zeal, habitual sin. Uh, Sadly, these are common problems among God's people. Let me repeat them. Spiritual apathy, indifference, we could say. A lack of consecration, devotion, commitment. Worldliness, carelessness, a lack of giving, an unwillingness to forgive, an absence of evangelistic zeal, habitual sin, common problems among God's people. It begs the question, why? Why are these common problems among God's people? I think there are a number of reasons. Perhaps the most significant reason is this. The gospel does not affect us the way it should. I'll repeat it. The gospel does not affect us, impact us the way it should. There is little wonder when we contemplate the gospel. There is little gratitude when we consider the gospel. There is, at times, sadly, little humility when we ponder the gospel. Why is that? Why is it that far too often, In our experience, I trust I'm speaking to someone this morning. In our experience, why is it that far too often the gospel does not affect us the way it should? I've given this a lot of thought. I have analyzed this from every conceivable angle. And here is what I have come up with. The gospel does not impact us oftentimes the way it should, because sadly our hearts no longer feel the truth of God's judgment. We don't feel the truth of God's judgment. The idea that God is an avenging God is weightless. It does not grip us. We do not feel it. And because we do not feel Feel it as we ought. 
the gospel is no longer good news. It is simply news. And because it is simply news, we remain unaffected. And because we remain unaffected, we struggle with spiritual apathy. We struggle with a lack of consecration. We struggle with worldliness, carelessness, a lack of giving, an unwillingness to forgive, an absence of evangelistic zeal. We struggle with habitual sin. Now, this is my thesis, if you like, this morning. And it begs another question. Okay, I understand. If God's judgment, if my heart no longer feels or struggles to feel the truth of God's judgment, and the gospel is no longer good news, is no longer great news, it's simply news, the question is this. Well, why doesn't my heart feel the truth of God's judgment? Maybe it did at one time. Maybe it did a long time ago. Maybe it did not that long ago. But today, it's just, as I've said before, it's just weightless. And again, I think there are a number of reasons. I think we are governed by sense, more by sense than by faith. Uh, by that, I mean we are governed more by what we hear, what we see, the tangible, than what is written and declared in God's word. I think that's one reason. I think another reason is we have adopted a false notion of God's unconditional love. God loves you unconditionally, true or false. Maybe. Maybe. If you're in Christ Jesus, he loves you unconditionally. If you are outside of Christ Jesus, he most certainly does not love you unconditionally. It is perhaps one of the biggest lies going in our day. You are by nature a child of wrath. My friend, you must feel the truth of God's judgment. But we have absorbed wholesale. We have adopted wholesale false notions of God's unconditional love. Another reason we think the Christian faith is about how to cope with life. It's a bunch of how-to seminars. How to be happy. How to be fulfilled, how to have a happy marriage, a happy family, how to raise kids, how to be successful, how to get through life. And we have become pragmatic. And the Christian faith is more about how to live in this world than it is eternal realities, places called heaven and hell. Another reason, we've lost all sense of the seriousness of sin. Is sin really that bad? What is the big deal? And is God really going to hold me accountable for my sin? Uh, sin, for many, is a term reserved for what we might describe as heinous crimes. Sin, according to God's word, is anything that falls short of God's perfection. My friend, those are poles apart, light years apart. A fifth, final reason, far too often, uh, we entertain ourselves to sleep. I think that's another factor. I think it's another reason why God's judgment, we just don't feel it. We don't feel it. Spiritual slumber and spiritual slumber that has arisen from a mindset 
that is devoted to, fixed upon leisure and a life of leisure. There are undoubtedly other reasons, but I think those five are prominent. I think those five are indisputable. And I guarantee it, if you ponder these things, give these things some attention, you will see the link. You will see the link between those factors, the weightlessness of the judgment of God, and therefore the gospel becoming merely news. And because it's merely news, spiritual apathy, carelessness, worldliness, a lack of devotion, a lack of giving, a lack of evangelism, habitual sin, and on and on it goes. Oh, that the gospel were good news, good news daily so that it would grip me. Oh, that I would live with these realities daily before my eyes. There is a heaven, there is a hell. There are two eternities. God's judgment that I would feel it in my belly and that I would truly appreciate what it means to be saved from the judgment of God through the blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Billy Graham passed away recently, right? We can all, well, some of us anyway, can imagine where he is now. I will state it publicly. I'm on record of stating it. I wasn't a big fan of the whole decisionism, and it sort of comes out of the revivalism era. I think it's created some problems. I think it's created some big problems in our day. But that aside, I was a big fan of Billy Graham, big fan of Billy Graham, and deeply appreciative of Billy Graham, not just because of that southern gentleman charm, Although he had a lot going on there, didn't he? There's that southern gentleman charm, a dying breed in many ways. Uh, No, he's a man who made it to the end of his race without scandal. Oh, I deeply appreciate that in today's age. The number of so-called evangelical pastors and elders that have fallen by the wayside into scandal. It's become normal. It's become expected. And there he is, this this shining bright light. You could take a magnifying glass and hold it up to his life. A man who lived without scandal. Speaks volumes. And the other reason I am deeply appreciative of Billy Graham is this. He believed what he preached. Right? When you listen to him, it was as if the gates of hell and heaven were opened before him. And he believed what he preached. Uh, taken it to heart, and these were realities to him, and he was deeply affected, deeply moved, deeply feeling when it came to God's judgment and the gospel as good news. Now, that is a rather long introduction. Why have I taken you down that road? To give you enough time to find the book of Nahum? I don't hear any pages rustling. That's a good sign. More importantly, I have taken you down that road to set the context for Nahum. This is a dark book. This is a depressing book. It is a discouraging book. Why? Because Nahum gives us a vision of the Almighty. 
He gives us a vision of God in which he is emphasizing the judgment of God. But I pray we understand how important this is, how important this is, how relevant this is, how timely this is, because it is only as we feel the truth of God's judgment that the gospel that so many of us know and can express so eloquently will pass from being merely news to good news, great news, and therefore stir us on to live thankful lives, earnest lives, and faithful lives. The historical context, the book of Nahum, we are stepping back in time almost 3,000 years, 2,700 years, give or year or two on either side to be precise, somewhere around 732 BC, a world empire known as Assyria, so modern-day Iraq, began to harass, really harass, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, the kingdom had been split in two. Northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. Assyria invades. Ten years later, 722 BC, Assyria lays waste to the northern kingdom, destroys everything in sight, including the city of Samaria, and deports the vast majority, as was its policy, deported the mass majority of Israelites, scattering them in other lands, taking foreigners from other lands and transplanting them in the northern kingdom. Soon after that, within 10 years, Assyria began to exert control over the southern kingdom. It does not destroy Jerusalem. It does not, it does not invade the land, so to speak. But the king of Judah becomes a vassal. He becomes a puppet, caught in the power struggle between Assyria and Egypt. And into the midst of the cruelty and the savagery and the barbarity. Try to imagine what it would be like today living under ISIS. Okay, now you've got it. This is living under the Assyrians. The cruelty the savagery and the barbarity into the midst steps a lonely prophet, Nahum. And he has a message. He has a message not so much for the Assyrians. He has a message for God's people. And the message is designed to encourage Judah. It is designed to comfort the people of God with the announcement that Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, its days are numbered. Judgment is coming. The wrath of God is about to be unleashed upon Nineveh and the entire Assyrian Empire, and the people of God are to be comforted. A couple of Sundays ago, we considered Nahum chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Today, we're going to continue where we left off, verse 9 through verse 15, Please follow along as I read this portion of God's word. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. 
From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. We're going to reflect on the judgment of God as revealed in these verses we've just read. And I pray by God's Spirit, four truths are deeply impressed upon our hearts. Four truths, facts. Concerning the judgment of God. Here is the first. God's judgment is sure. Look at the opening statement in verse 12. Thus says the Lord. Look at the opening statement in verse 14. The Lord has given commandment about you. The Lord has spoken. The Lord has given commandment about you. I think we could state it as follows. The Lord has decreed. He has decreed Nineveh's desolation. He has observed. He has weighed the evidence. He has passed sentence. And now he is about to execute judgment. We read in the book of Psalms, the 11th Psalm, verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Be careful. God doesn't have eyes, nor does he have eyelids. God is pure spirit, invisible, without body, without parts, without passions. So why at times does the Bible describe God as if he had body parts? It is not to give a true depiction of God. It is to help us in our understanding of the particular message that the author wants to convey. In this instance, he speaks of God's eyes and eyelids. Why? He wants to emphasize this simple truth. God sees. In seeing, he knows. As we read in the book of Job, chapter 37, verse 16. God is perfect in knowledge. He knows all things fully and immediately. 
He is out of our sight. That's true. He is invisible. He is out of our sight. But we are never out of his sight. It is impossible to escape the gaze of the Lord. And here is what we must comprehend. It is not only that he sees what we do, what we have done, what we do, what we will do. We're not only speaking of the undeniable fact that he observes our actions. We are also confessing that he sees our thoughts. He sees into our mind. He knows every thought you've ever had. And you think you're going to escape judgment. He knows every thought I've ever had. He knows every feeling you've ever had. And he knows every feeling I've ever had. And he tests the children of man. And here's what I want us to get. His judgment is sure. Listen to the words of Acts 17, verse 31. It's the Apostle Paul speaking. God has fixed a day. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. It's fixed. It is determined. It is decreed. It is sure. Here's the second truth I want us to understand concerning God's judgment. It is fair. Look at the ninth verse. The question, what do you plot against the Lord? What do you devise? What do you plan? What's going on in that cunning mind of yours whereby you oppose the Lord? He is speaking perhaps of the city of Nineveh. He might be addressing the king of Nineveh. He might have the entire Assyrian empire in view. What do you plot against the Lord? And then look at what we read in the 11th verse. From you came one. Again, it might be an individual, the king of Assyria. It might be the city of Nineveh from among the Assyrians. Doesn't really matter. From you came one who plotted, this is what you plotted, evil against the Lord. Oh, you are a worthless counselor. I mean, Nineveh has committed unspeakable atrocities. And we could go back and we can peruse the historical record. I mean, this was a depraved people unspeakable atrocities. It has enslaved and mistreated entire nations. It has reveled in its debauchery. But far eclipsing these, Nineveh has opposed God. That is their chief sin. That is their main sin. The stench of their arrogance has gone up before the Almighty. Now, I want us to build bridges in our minds. Oh, I pray by God's Spirit we're able to build bridges. And and I want to help you build a, a bridge between the old and the new right now. I asked you to find the book of Romans, right? Chapter 1. And I want us to understand that Nineveh, what what it what it typifies, what it symbolizes, what it stands for, man's pride, this arrogant spirit, this open hostility and opposition toward God was not and is not unique to Nineveh, but is indicative of the entire human race. 
and of every human being who has ever lived, save one, Jesus Christ. This is precisely Paul's point in his epistle to the Romans. Chapter 1, look at what he states in verse 20. For his, that is God's, invisible attributes. He is an invisible God. His attributes are invisible. He is pure, indivisible spirit. Without body, parts, or passions, we cannot see him. But his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. What is Paul's point? His point is simply this. God has revealed himself in creation. Paul's point is this. It is not up for debate. It is not for me to prove to you that God created in the heavens and the earth. Paul's point is this. If you don't believe it, it is not because of a lack of evidence. It is because you are willingly suppressing it. That's the point. I think it was Jonathan, Jonathan Morris. I think it was Jonathan. If it wasn't him, it doesn't matter. I think he was illustrating this in a conversation I had with him a few weeks ago. He said, you know, it's kind of like if you're swimming around in a pool and you have an inflatable toy, a beach ball, and there it is, and you want to sink that beach ball. What do you do? You put your weight on it and you hold it down. It's not going down on its own. It's not going to sink on its own. It is going to flate. Because it's inflated, it is going to float. If you want to submerge that beach ball under the water, you must suppress it. If you deny the existence of God, if you really are an evolutionist, religiously speaking, it is a religion, my friend. It is a religion. And it requires a blind faith, not a thinking faith. If that is really your position, if that is where you are coming from, I want you to understand God doesn't even recognize your position. Because the reality of the situation is not that you have weighed the evidence and arrived at a rational conclusion. The reality is this, because of your own righteousness, because of your own moral depravity, you're suppressing what you know to be true deep down inside. God exists. He has created this universe, and he is going to judge this universe. Look at what Paul goes on to say in verse 21. For although they knew God, it's clearly perceived. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, clearly perceived. It is obvious it's not even up for debate. They know it, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile, foolish in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, verse 22, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals, and reptiles. In other words, rather than worshiping the creator, they now live for the creature. If ever there were an indictment 
on our society, there it is. It doesn't stop there. You skip down to verse 29. You follow through Paul's thinking. His first premise, God reveals himself in creation. His second premise, man rejects that revelation and corrupts that revelation. And what is the fruit? Man is filled with all unrighteousness, verse 29, filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Let me just read the newspaper headlines. More to the point, just honestly take a look at your own heart. Evil, covetousness. You ever coveted anything? Malice, hatred, enmity toward others, full of envy, murder, murderous thoughts, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. Any gossips here? I know the answer to that one. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And verse 32 is the kicker. Here it is. Though they know God's decree. They know. They're suppressing it. But they know there is a decree. He has fixed a day upon which he will judge the world in righteousness. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Oh, my friend, please understand, God's judgment is sure. And please understand, make no mistake, God's judgment is fair. Here is the third truth I want us to understand. God's judgment means desolation for God's enemies. Quickly, ninth verse, he will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. What's his point? Simply this, God's judgment of Nineveh will be so complete, so thorough, so radical, so full that there won't be any need for a second judgment. Why? Because there won't be anything left to judge. He needs only one battle to destroy Nineveh. It will not live to fight another day. It is over. Look at verse 10. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. The point of the three comparisons, again, is of total consumption. The bush by thorns. The drunkard by wine. The stubble by fire. In other words, God will entirely consume Nineveh. Look at verse 12. Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Hebrew term for cut down. Term used for shearing of sheep. It is the idea literally translated of being mown down. First World War, oh, this is horrific. First World War, but maybe it will serve to the point. Was it the Daisy Cutter? First World War? I think it was, wasn't it? Invented that machine gun. It fired at about, at about six inches above the level of the ground. I mean, just horrific. Man's, man's depravity is unbelievable. But a machine gun aimed six inches above the ground. Why? For anyone who might still be lying out there in between the trenches. It's the idea here, though. 
this mowing down, this cutting off. You get it again in verse 14. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave. The Lord is saying, I'm going to dig it myself. For you are. You are vile, says the Lord God Almighty. Notice the threefold description here. Their names will be cut off. Their gods will be cut off. And their lives will be cut off. Again, it is the idea of complete, utter, thorough desolation. God's judgment is sure. God's judgment is fair. God's judgment means desolation for God's enemies. Fourth truth, God's judgment means deliverance for God's people. Look at the last statement in verse 12. He's speaking to Judah here. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. More on that next Lord's Day, verse 13. And now I will break his yoke, Nineveh's yoke, the yoke of the Assyrians from off you and will burst your bonds, those chains apart. We're talking about liberty here, freedom, deliverance. Verse 15, behold, upon the mountains, it's prophetic, this battle is going to take place. Nineveh will be laid waste, and then a messenger will come, and Jerusalem is surrounded by mountains, and this messenger will come over the mountains. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him. There's a parallel passage in Isaiah 52. How lovely are the feet of him. Speaks of what? Joy. And he comes running, this messenger he brings Good news in the Septuagint is translated with the word euangelion, from which we get what? Evangel, evangelistic, evangelism, good news, who publishes peace, shalom, not merely the cessation of hostility, not merely the peace that arises after a military conflict, but well-being, wholeness, fullness, this delight, if you like, this life that will be transformed as God brings Judah out from under their oppression. Now, here's what I want you to get, another bridge. And this one is unbelievably important. And again, I pray the Spirit of God helps us to connect these dots. Nahum chapter 1, verse 15. Parallel passage, Isaiah 52 Verse 7, Paul quotes it, folks. He quotes it. He cites it in his epistle to the Romans. Chapter 10, verse 15. How lovely are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes, announces, declares, proclaims peace. What is Paul's point? Oh, please get this. There is a far greater bondage than Judah's bondage to Nineveh. What is it? It is man's bondage to sin. There is a far greater judgment than God's judgment of Nineveh. What is it? It is an agonizing eternity 
in a place called hell. There is far greater good news than God's deliverance of Judah from Nineveh. What is it? It is God's deliverance of sinners from God's own judgment through the perfect work of his Son, Jesus Christ. That in the Lord Jesus Christ, we see he who was publicly displayed and made a propitiation in his blood. In the Lord Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross, we see this wrath, this wrath which is prefigured in the destruction of Nineveh, this wrath prefigured go all the way back to Noah's flood, a wrath prefigured in the 10 plagues upon Egypt, a wrath prefigured in Israel's entrance into the land of Canaan and the overthrow of those peoples who lived there, a wrath displayed in Jerusalem's eventual destruction in AD 70, a wrath that has been on display throughout the history of humanity if we would but care to open our eyes and take a look. And it is all prefiguring pointing to a day that has been fixed. It's called the day of the Lord. When his wrath has been filled up and the day of judgment has arrived and he will raise people from their graves and the living and the dead will stand before him and he will pass judgment. But here's the truth, that that wrath prefigured, that wrath coming, that judgment seen so many ways in Scripture and throughout human history, and that judgment coming, they meet at Calvary's cross. And therefore, when I stand in the shadow of Calvary's cross, when I look away from myself and I confess my sin, and I say, there, there is no reason why God should save me. There is no reason why God should be merciful to me. I'm going to approach God through the Lord Jesus Christ believing that he bore God's wrath for me and believing that when I come to him through simple faith, oh, God will be merciful to me. Oh, for the believers here, that should cure our spiritual apathy, right? It should cure our indifference once and for all. Lack of evangelistic zeal, lack of giving, lack of devotion, lack of commitment. Poof, 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 poof. That should all just dissipate, should it not, before this good news. Thankfulness, faithfulness, earnestness. And for the unbelievers here present this Lord's Day, few, many, old, young, male, female, I do not know. But here is what I want to say to you, and I beg of you, if you are an unbeliever, just imagine for a few moments, we're just sitting in a coffee shop somewhere, and we're having this conversation, and I am simply explaining why the gospel is good news. Can you do that? If you're not a believer, just lend me your mind just for a few moments, and imagine there we are over our coffee and we're having this discussion. And here is what I would seek to convey to you. The starting point. God, I don't care what you have heard. 
God is an avenging God. He is an avenging God. And he's a God who is full of anger and wrath every day. And this anger and wrath flow from his holiness. He cannot and he will not tolerate rebels. He cannot and he will not tolerate those who neglect him. He will not tolerate those who oppose him. He will not tolerate those who have acted arrogantly toward him. And my friend, you are in danger of entering an agonizing eternity in hell. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And then I would say to you, as I'm going to say to you right now, God is a merciful God. Amen. He is a merciful God. He has sent his son, Jesus Christ, as a ransom, as a substitute, someone to take our place, someone to bear that judgment on our behalf, someone to bear that vengeance on our behalf, pay the penalty for our sin. Therefore, Jesus Christ is the only means by which we can be saved from the wrath of God. And then I would say to you, we receive this gift. And believe you me, it is a gift. And how do you receive a, a gift on your birthday or at Christmas? You simply stretch out your hands and you receive it. It is a gift. A gift. Unmerited, undeserved. You can't do anything to merit it. Oh, believing is reaching out with our hands, our our hands, so to speak, our spiritual hands, that is our hearts, receiving God's gift of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And then, if memory would serve me well, as we were discussing there in the coffee shop, I might recite a little poem for you. I like poems. And I'll recite this poem for you now. And I would pray that the Spirit of God would give you eyes to see in Christ. There is no condemnation. There is no hell for me. The torment and the fire. My eyes shall never see. For me there is no sentence. For me death has no sting. Because the Lord who loves me shall shield me with his wing. And then I would say to you, my friend, that is what it is to be a believer. I'm speaking to the unbelievers here. And I'm begging you to give these things some consideration. And I am pleading with you to consider the claims of Christ and the word of God. And to ponder this fact. That the gospel is not merely news. It is good news. It is great news. It is the best news. You might need a little more prodding. Some of our young ones might need a little more prodding. What, 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 okay, I want to stretch out my spiritual hands. You lost me there. I, I want to believe and I want to receive this gift. I, I, I do. I know I'm a sinner. And um, yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. I, I understand it. And this idea, of a, you, you, this idea of, of a day of judgment, okay, you've got my attention. That prospect of judgment is terrifying. 
But there, there is something that's striking a chord whenever you speak of the Lord Jesus. And this idea of salvation and forgiveness in Him. What, what, what am I supposed to do? And here's what I would say to you. I would encourage you to take Psalm 25, verse 11, and you take it and you make it your own today and tomorrow and for the rest of the days and the years that the Lord gives you breath. Here it is. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. For your name's sake, not because I'm special, not because I'm particularly wonderful, not because there is anything meritorious in me, not because of anything I have done, not because I'm better than him and certainly better than her, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Our Heavenly Father, may this indeed be the day of salvation for some wayward sinner. May this be the day in which you bring a wandering sheep back into your fold by convicting powerfully of sin and judgment and hell and by convincing tenderly that there is indeed compassion and mercy and forgiveness for those who come to you through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.